What is up, my dudes? Welcome back to Olympia Oddities. So first up, let's get into some exciting news. I had some buttons made up by my friends over at Rachel's Records, and I think that I'm planning on giving some away to some of my longtime supporters. I'm still trying to figure out the logistics of figuring out the best way of contacting those that I want to send some to, and the best way of um, mailing them out. So I've got quite a few of them though, so I'm excited to get them out there into the hands of my listeners. So for today's episode, there is a trigger warning, as I'm going to be talking about a school shooting, so feel free to skip this one if you want to or need to, and I'll see you again next time. For today's episode, we're talking true crime again, and I'm going to tell you about one of the Pacific Northwest's most notorious school shootings and the events that led up to a murder spree. Let's get into the life of Kip Kinkle and the events that led up to a tragic day that would leave leave both of his parents and some classmates dead. Kipland Philip Kinkle was born on August 30th, 1982. He was the second child born to William and Faith Kinkle. Their other child was Kristen, Kip's older sister. Both of his parents were Spanish teachers, with William teaching at Thurston High School and Lane Community College, while Faith worked at Springfield High School. William and Faith were described as loving and supportive parents. When Kip was six, they spent a sabbatical year in Spain. While in Spain, they enrolled Kip into a Spanish-speaking kindergarten for him to attend during their time there. His family said that he struggled in this class, especially with the curriculum. When the family returned to Oregon, Kip began attending a elementary school in the small town of Walterville, which is located about five miles east of Springfield. Here his teachers described him as immature and lacking in his physical and emotional development. At the recommendation of his teachers, his parents had him repeat the first grade over again. During his repeat class year, he was diagnosed with dyslexia. His dyslexia would worsen as time went on, and he was enrolled in special education classes by the time second grade started for him. From an early age, Kip showed high interest in guns and explosives. His dad initially tried to discourage this, but later decided to enroll him in some gun safety courses. After he'd completed the safety courses, his dad bought him a 22 caliber rifle. When Kip was 15, his dad bought him a 9mm Glock handgun as well. Classmates of Kinkle didn't have many nice things to say about him, with some describing him as strange and morbid. Other classmates described him as psychotic, or, that probably isn't a word that you should use anymore, schizoid. In the Wikipedia article I used as one of my sources, they list bands that he was interested in, as if they're a red flag. Kind of that late 90s school shooting panic, uh, oh no, the kid who listens to Marilyn Manson is gonna shoot up the school, kind of like that leftover mentality still showed up on the Wikipedia page, and I kind of thought it was interesting. Um, These bands included Nine Inch Nails, Rage Against the Machine, and Marilyn Manson. As our understanding as a society of mass shootings has grown, we now know that millions of people listen to music that others might consider angry or dark, but would never act out violently because of it. Listening to Marilyn Manson doesn't mean that you're a future murderer, it just means that you don't have great taste in music. And now, with the allegations that came out, support terrible people. But anyways, moving right along. Classmates also reported that Kip would talk about um, committing acts of violence constantly. He told some of his friends that he'd wanted to join the army after graduation to find out what it was like to kill someone. His family had taken a trip to Disneyland, and when asked questions about the trip, Kip claimed that he had wanted to punch Mickey Mouse in the nose. I don't know what Mickey did to him. 
but I don't think it's deserving of a punch in the nose. One of the classes he took in high school was a speech class, and he gave a speech detailing how to make bombs to his classmates. He would also set off stink bombs in other students' lockers. In his English class, they were studying Romeo and Juliet, and Kip found himself relating to the protagonist a lot. He was also really into the 1996 movie adaption, which tells a modern version of the events of Romeo and Juliet. Kinkle's parents enrolled him in anger management and decided that he should see a psychiatrist. Shortly before his murder, William had confessed to a friend that he had run out of options to help his son and that he was terrified. His terror was justified, and on May 20th, 1998, Kip was expelled from school for having a loaded, stolen gun in his locker. A friend of Kip's had stolen the gun from one of his friend's dads. He'd arranged the night before to sell the weapon to Kip. Kinkle had paid him $110 for the gun, which was a Beretta Model 90 32 caliber pistol with a 9-round magazine. He put the gun into a paper bag and put it inside of his locker. When the dad who owned the gun discovered that it was missing, he notified the police. He also gave them the names of a few students who he thought could have had something to do with the gun's disappearance. Kip Kinkle's name wasn't on this list of original suspects. The school was notified of the gun's disappearance and the father's suspicions of who could have taken it. They soon realized that Kip might have been involved, so they questioned him. They were going to check him for weapons, but he told them outright, Look, I'm going to be square with you guys. The gun's in my locker. He was suspended until the school would be able to give him an expulsion hearing, and he and his friend who sold him the gun were both arrested. Kip was released from police custody and driven home by his dad. Once they arrived at home that afternoon, William told Kip that if his behavior didn't improve, they would send him off to military school. Kip's reaction to this was to, at 3 p.m. that afternoon, go and get his 22 from his bedroom and ammo from his parents' bedroom. William, his dad, was sitting at the kitchen counter having a cup of coffee. Kip then shot his own father in the back of the head. He dragged his body into the bathroom and covered it with a sheet. Faith, his mom, arrived home at about 6.30 p.m. that night. Kip went out and met her in the garage, told her that he loved her, and shot her twice in the back of the head, three times in the face, and once in the heart. He moved her body by dragging it and covered it with a sheet, just like he had to his dad. After the killings and into the next morning, Kip played an opera song called Liebestad over his family's, Rome- er, his family's sound system. The song was featured on the soundtrack of Romeo and Juliet, the movie Kip was enamored with. It would still be loudly playing when the police arrived at the house that day. A side note here, but the opera song playing loudly made me think of John List, who was a family annihilator who actually got away with his crimes for a while and was living a whole new life under a fake identity. When the police entered the crime scene on that case, they discovered organ music blasting loudly throughout the home. Kip wrote a note that attempted to explain his crimes. He left it on the coffee table in their living room. He wrote, I just got two felonies on my record. My parents can't take that. It would destroy them. The embarrassment would be too much for them. They couldn't live with themselves. He also said in the note that, My head just doesn't work right. Goddamn these voices inside my head. I have to kill people. I don't know why. I have no other choice. The next day, May 21st, Kip drove his mom's car until he reached a spot on North 61st Street, about two blocks away from the school. He was wearing a trench coat to conceal his weapons, five in total. He carried two hunting knives, his rifle, a 9x19mm Glock 19 pistol, 
and a 22 caliber Ruger MK2 pistol. He also had 1,127 rounds of ammunition on him. He jogged to the school's campus and entered the patio area of the school. He fired two shots, one that killed Ben Walker and the other wounding Ryan Attenbury. Attenbury. He then entered the school's cafeteria and fired the remaining 48 rounds from his rifle while walking across it. 24 students were wounded, and one, Michael Niklausen, was killed. Kinkle had fired off 50 rounds, and 37 of them had struck students. About 300 students had been gathered in the area of the shooting when it began. In one of my sources for this episode, an excellent three-part series that revisited the shooting 20 years later by KLCC, they interviewed several survivors and witnesses to the shooting. One of them, Jolene Liu, was a junior at the time, or who was a junior at the time of the shooting, said that the day had started just like any other. She'd been hanging out with some friends inside of the cafeteria, and other students were gathered in the area because they were campaigning for upcoming student elections, and an honor breakfast for the seniors was happening across the hall. Jolene told KLCC that there was a lot of activity going on anyway, but it switched up when we heard the popping, and not growing up around guns, I had no idea what the noise was. Jolene's, Jolene's boyfriend was among the students shot, and she turned to look at Kinkle. She described his expression by saying, anger, just plain anger. I wouldn't say that he targeted my table, but mo- my table of friends was the one that was hit the most. Tony Case, another junior, was shot four times. He recalled a paralyzing numbness and weakness in his body and said he was trying to pull himself up to sit on the bench of a table and there was a girl next to him um, who'd been watching him struggling and trying to get up on the bench. And she said, "Uh, maybe you should just sit there on the ground. And I said, yeah, okay, I guess that's a good idea. Another student who was in the cafeteria was Bettina Lynn, a junior at the time. She had thought that some of the students campaigning must have brought some fireworks inside the school as a prank. She felt something hit her in the back, but didn't know what it was. She said that she got angry, mad that she thought, uh, mad at what she thought was a dangerous prank that was endangering everyone. She said that she thought, who's doing this prank that's putting us all in danger? And the moment the second bullet hit my foot, I noticed the gun. Bettina hid underneath the table and watched what happened next. Kinkle's rifle ran out of ammunition, and while he was reloading, Jacob Riker, one of the students who had been wounded, tackled him with the help of several other students. A total of seven students were involved in tackling and holding on to Kinkle. These kids are complete heroes in a situation that they should have never had to be in in the first place. While he was being tackled, Kip had, to ma- had managed to draw his Glock from his belt and fired off another round. This shot injured Jacob Riker again, as well as another student. Kip yelled at the students, just kill me. They were able to keep him detained until the police arrived and arrested Kinkle. Once in police custody, Kinkle grabbed one of the knives he had secured to his leg and attacked a police officer. He begged to be fatally shot during this attack. He later said that he had done this to try to trick the officer into shooting him, that he had wanted to die by suicide after killing his parents, but he could not bring himself to do it. The officer used pepper spray on him, and he was subdued. In his recorded confession to police, he said that, My dad kept saying how my mom, how embarrassed she was going to be, and how horrible I was. And I couldn't let my mom feel like that. I couldn't do anything else. There's no other way. 17-year-old Michael Niklausen died at the scene, and Ben Walker later passed away after being transported to the hospital and kept on life support until his parents arrived. <laughs>
The other students, including Jacob Riker, who had suffered a perforated lung, were taken to the hospital and treated for their injuries. Jacob made a full recovery, recovery from his injuries and was awarded the Boy Scouts of America Honor Medal with crossed palms for the heroism he showed on the day of the attack. A scholarship was created in remembrance of those lost in the shooting for graduates of Thurston High School, and in 2003, a permanent memorial was created at the school. Over 70 scholarships, totaling about $35,000, have been given out. During Kinkle's sentencing, the defense brought in experts in mental health to show that Kit must have been mentally ill, and that's what caused the shooting and the murders to occur. Two psychiatrists testified that Kinkle exhibited signs of paranoid schizophrenia at the time of the shooting. Jeffrey Hicks, the only psychologist who had treated Kinkle before the shooting, said that he was in satisfactory mental health. Hicks had seen Kinkle for nine sessions and had been treating him for major depression. His parents had pulled him out of therapy after he seemed to be responding well to treatment and had shown less symptoms of depression. On September 24, 1999, just three days before jury selection was to begin, Kinkle pleaded guilty to murder and attempted murder. With this guilty plea went any chance of him being acquitted for insanity. He was sentenced to 111 years in prison without possibility of parole that November. At the sentencing, he apologized to the court for the murder of his parents and the school shooting. In June of 2007, he sought a new trial. He claimed that his previous should, attorneys should have taken the case to trial and used the insanity defense. In August, a Marion County judge denied him a new trial. In June of 07, he was also moved from the Oregon Youth Authority McLaren Correctional Facility to the Oregon State Correctional Institution as he was nearing his 25th birthday and aging out of being held in a juvenile facility. Kinkle appealed this, and on January 12, 2011, the Oregon Court of Appeals denied his motion for a new trial. Last year, in 2020, Kinkle filed a new motion in federal court, but it was rejected by a judge just months later. In her ruling, U.S. District Judge Anne Aiken stated that the Oregon Supreme Court decided that Kinkle's sentence didn't violate the Eighth Amendment because his crimes reflected not the transient immaturity of youth, but an irretrievably depraved character arising from a deep-seated psychological problem that will not diminish as the petitioner matures. Thank you for listening to another episode of Olympia Oddities. If you want to support the podcast, you can follow the Facebook or Instagram for the podcast at Olympia Oddities Podcast. Tell a friend or leave me a positive review. Just a reminder that I do always take submissions um, for episode topics that you guys want to hear. And I've been getting a lot of really great, interesting ones lately. I'm loving it. Uh, you can message them to me over on Facebook or on Instagram, or if you want to email one in, the email for the podcast is olympiaoddities at gmail.com. And until next time, friends.